The GIST is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Fundamentals of Photography. Right now, get 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, March 27th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Harry Reid is stepping down as Senate Minority Leader. The former boxer from Searchlight, Searchlight, Nevada, once told George Bush, your dog is fat. Why? The dog was fat. He's a blunt guy. He said that about uh, George W. Bush. Another George W. Bush-related quote, the man's father is a wonderful human being. I think this guy's a loser. So Harry Reid, maybe not invited to all the Bush's Christmas parties. Harry Reid once choked a guy who tried to bribe him. He was working with the FBI at the time to nail the guy. And then he just couldn't take it anymore. And at the end of the tape, jumped on him, started choking him, yelling, you son of a bitch, you tried to bribe me. That guy went on to do a couple of interesting things. One, manage the career of and marry LaToya Jackson. And two, the attempted briber once probably planted a bomb under Harry Reid's car. So he was fighting. He was a fighting minority and majority leader, but he was not the fightinest. No, I was going over the list of Senate minority, Senate majority leaders. This was an early 20th century position invented. 1913 minority leader, 1923 majority leader, Joseph T. Robinson, nicknamed Scrappy Joe, also nicknamed the fightinest man in the U.S. Senate. We need the fightinest this or the fightinest that. These are important men. I never heard of most of these guys. Indiana Republican James Watson from 29 to 33. Here's one thing that the official Senate webpage said about James Watson. Until the end, Watson remained well-liked if not well-respected. That's great. Isn't that great? Then there was Wallace White. So let me read you one sentence and then another sentence. Again, his official biography. In the Senate, White's colleagues considered him one of the kindest, gentlest, and most fair-minded individuals to grace the institution, the institution of leader. It also says about White, Little noted in the realms of political science, even senators with a firm grasp of institutional history may have trouble recalling his name. So they're not saying maybe you and I forgot that from 1943 to 1949, Wallace White was minority and majority leader. They're saying other U.S. senators don't even know this. Then I found this guy. Oh, my gosh. William Noland from 53 to 54 was the majority leader, was a Republican, but it wasn't a real majority. It was very fractured, and there were also senators dying, and the big thing was LBJ was a much better leader than he was, so he outmaneuvered this guy, Noland. Noland was from California, left the Senate to run for governor, lost. Life spiraled downward, depression, owed a lot of money to mobsters, big-time gambler, died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in 1974. That was a Senate leader. 20 years after he'd been one of the most powerful men in the most powerful country in the world, commits suicide, owing hundreds of thousands of dollars to gamblers. Now, the minority leader will probably be Charles Schumer. Reid has endorsed Schumer. There is a draft Warren movement, even though Elizabeth Warren has more tenure than only three of her other Democratic Senate colleagues. There always seems to be a draft Warren movement. Draft Warren for minority leader. Draft Warren for the Democratic nominee. How about this? With the first pick of the 2015 draft, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers pick... Elizabeth Warren. 
Oh, Elizabeth Warren, she's out of Houston. She has terrible arm strength. She doesn't roll right. She has trouble picking up the blitz, but man, did she ace the wonderlick. I think Lovey Smith can coach her up. If she is a busted QB, however, she could run the team's salary cap. On the show today, my spiel, I take you inside the papers. But first, House of Cards showrunner Bo Williman comes by to talk power, how to wield it, and how to portray it. So I met Bo. We knew of each other's work. One of those situations where we instantly got along. And right away, we're talking about what's the nature of happiness. If your version of happiness is struggle and strife and failure, you know, which is sort of masochistic, then fine. Like, I guess I could say I'm happy. But the idea of happiness of like you achieve this place where all is good with the world, like, I guess, peace. Yeah. Like, it's like uh, the drug in Brave New World. What is that? Soma? That's that's. For not only for you, but for those of us who enjoy your products, it would be bad for you to achieve Exactly. Like, you need that tension. I mean, for me, peace is like, you know, the moment I have peace, I immediately want to say, what is the opposite? Like, what is the thing I'm missing now? What out there am I blinding myself to? This is good. Are we rolling on this? <laughs> All right, this is good. Oh, we are? I know. Oh, shit. Okay, no, you sneak good. up on me. I like that. No, I just want to... I mean, but it does get back to Orson Welles and the Ferris wheel with the the, the, the Swiss and the Italians, right? You know that thing? <laughs> I love that you're making third man analogies right now. I'm roll, I'll roll with you, man. Yeah, No, but what it. I'm saying is for you and what you do, aren't you Italian culture? And it's never quite been peaceful and then you got the swiss well i mean you know what have they given us the cuckoo clock? you you went highbrow and i'll go to cliche land i mean it boils down to the grass is greener right you mm-hmm. know like the the moment that you know you're chomping on one pasture you if you're someone like me you're, you're already looking out of the side of your eye for another one so listen <laughs> i will acknowledge that we've just done the uh WTF Mark Marin rolling is did we start yet start and that's fine with me but now I'll get into some actual house of cards stuff all right and I should say we're here with uh, Bo Williman the creator of the American version of house of cards the showrunner of house of cards we should say and your character Kevin Spacey's character in that Frank Underwood I mean he's iconic do you think he's actually the soul of him explains a lot about politicians or do we love him because he's actually quite unique I think there are aspects of him that are true to most politicians, but just not to the extreme degree that they're true for Frank. You know, everyone assumes I'm super cynical about politics in Washington. I'm not. Farthest from the truth. I think that when it works, it can accomplish extraordinary things. And I think most politicians show up to D.C. for all the right reasons. They actually have a sense of civic duty. They want to serve the public. They want to do something good for the world. They are faced as they confront power real ethical issues that often live in a land of gray. They often have to make decisions that aren't necessarily morally true in order to accomplish the bigger moral good. And all of this is incredibly complex. With Frank Underwood, what you have is access to someone who completely eschews ideology from the get-go. He sees ideology as a form of cowardice because it prescribes all your behavior. It doesn't give you any room for flexibility or compromise. Uh, And so he operates completely and utterly outside the rules. And I think that there's a part of every politician that wishes they could at times. And there's a part of all of us that wishes we could at times. And so there is a certain delicious, vicarious quality to a character like that where you get to see someone who's completely unbound by convention, law, or sense of ethical duty. 
Now, you know, you've worked with real politicians. You've worked on campaigns. You've worked Worked in for, I wouldn't say with. <laughs> I was pretty low on the totem pole. You've seen, so I wonder, okay, maybe you haven't seen them at their most honest. But one difference, I think, is that probably a lot of politicians do act like Frank or they'd like to, you know, be able to pull off the stuff he does. But I really don't think that they admit to themselves what he admits to his himself. Like, I don't think they know themselves to that extent. Now, how would I know their public statements are like his public statements? You know, it has nothing to do with when he turns the camera and gives away his motivation. But do you think politicians are generally self-deluded about what their motivations are? Uh, wow. Great question. I, I think a lot of the times, yes, because you must be. You have to compartmentalize. Uh, what Frank gives us is access. He's brutally honest with us and with himself. He turns to us literally and says, this is what I'm going to do. And now watch me do it. And I have no bones about how nefarious or duplicitous it is. It's the first time that the president of the United States has visited Gaffney. Can you believe it? Oh, I wouldn't be here if I had a choice, but I have to do these sort of things now. Makes me seem more human. And you have to be a little human when you're the president. That's a degree of honesty which makes us willing to root for him despite everything he does because it's so rare that we get that sort of honesty from anyone. Now, if he's being honest with us, clearly he's being honest with himself, although we do see plenty of times where he has to compartmentalize or rationalize ways and things uh, so as so as to not to have to fully deal with them. You know, if, spoiler here, spoiler, take Peter Russo's death. I mean, I think he would see that in his worldview as a mercy killing, not a murder. You know, what what is the mind of someone who is able to redefine a moment so that it's palatable? Uh, in season three, a challenger to him for the nomination says, is this how you live with yourself? A seat on the court where you belong. Is this how you live with yourself? by rationalizing the obscene into the palatable. And I think that that is something that all politicians have to do to a degree. You know, you can look at current politicians, uh, whether, you know, take Barack Obama as an example. Uh, you know, he's, he has said recently he, he regrets not closing Guantanamo on day one. But at the time when he didn't close it, despite having promised that he would close it, he must have had a way of rationalizing that to himself on why he couldn't do it. Or take, or take you know, his stance on gay marriage, which maybe now he says he's evolved. I wonder if at the time he really lied to himself and said that I have these conflicting opinions. I think personally he was always for it, but he just knew it was politically expedient or politically useful to deny that he was for gay marriage. And I think that he might be right. Like, what if he, what if he's for gay marriage? He makes that a big stance, and he doesn't get elected as a consequence. Well, right. Well, that you just went to the crux of the matter. Is in order to be effective with power, you have to attain power, and oftentimes, the, or or maintain power. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, you have to the, the things you have to do to maintain or acquire power go directly against the things that you want to achieve. I don't think that Barack Obama, and he can correct me, when he was in school in Hawaii was waking up every morning and saying, one day I am going to completely reform healthcare in America. I think he wanted to be president of the United States. I think he probably said that to himself early on. But what was the issue at the time when he became president? It was health care. So he had to convince himself that this is what he cared about more than anything in the world. But had it not been health care and had it been immigration instead of health care, for instance, he would have convinced himself that that's what he cared most about. Look at LBJ. 
after the JFK assassination. Here's a man who had a very complicated stance on civil rights. Because he relied on Southern Democrats for his power base in the Senate and because he was from Texas, he lived in an area of gray. He was probably far more progressive than his colleagues, but his colleagues weren't that progressive. When he becomes president, he has to push civil rights harder than anything he's pushed in his life, not necessarily because he believed in it, but because he had an election that he wanted to win in a very short amount of time in order to make his mark. And if he wanted to win over Northeast liberals, he was going to have to show some progress on that. Whether he believed in it or not, in a way, didn't matter. What mattered was that he actually succeeded in getting it done. And he probably did it more for political benefit than for ideological uh, reasons. And that, that sort of area is the area that is endlessly fascinating to me in the show. Yeah. To have power, as hard as Washington is, you have to really, really, really want to have power. And it's been suggested that, well, that's almost disqualifying. Like, that's almost a psychosis to want to be president. Do you think we're part of the reason that if we are in trouble, part of the reason is that we're ruled by people who have this voracious capacity to need to rule? But that's always been the case. Mm -hmm. I mean, since since the, the first cavemen and cavewomen figured out that if I pick up a stick, that gives me an advantage over someone else, and I want to be the person holding the stick. In any industry, whether it's politics, finance, law, I mean, sports, you name it, in order to be at the highest level, you have to have a tenaciousness, a deep-seated ambition, a ruthlessness in order to get there. Absolutely. We want these people who are driven like that, and yet the rubrics that we judge politicians are on are things like, guy we'd have a beer with, cares and understands the needs of people like me, would be a good babysitter. Like, these correlate very highly to the politicians we Well, we want, we we have conflicting American mythologies. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, it is the people, right? On the other hand, we, so the people are supposed to run the country. But on the other hand, we have self-reliance and individualism, and, and I don't want anyone telling me what to do. We want that quality in our leaders. We want them to be individualists. At the same time, we want them to be of the people. We want them to be effective, but we also want them to be saints. And you can't be effective and be a saint. You can't even be effective and necessarily always follow the law. Right. What's a great example of that? Abraham Lincoln. When you make martial law in Maryland, dissolve the Maryland legislature, get rid of the writ of habeas corpus, uh, and do this similar types of things in Kentucky because you can't allow those states to join the Confederacy, you are in direct violation of the Constitution. He knowingly did that. He pissed on the Constitution in order to save it because he said, I'm going to pick it up, I'm going to wring it out, dry it off, but at least it'll still be intact. In the meantime, though, I have to break the law. So there's someone who, this wasn't someone who had some sex scandal or made a bad choice. This is someone who was knowingly breaking the law. And, and I think that sort of thinking is what we admire in our great leaders, but it's, it, it has a flip side and a dangerous side to it. So here's my last question. In, in so much of what I've been asking you, we keep talking about Frank, Kevin Spacey's character. Kevin Spacey brought a lot to it. But it does strike me, you've done so much in your life. You've written plays. You've worked on campaigns. You're a visual artist. You lived in South Africa, Estonia, all this stuff, right? <laughs> if your crowning achievement is the creation of this character, 
I'm just noting that in our conversation, it keeps coming back to the character. We're compelled by human beings, you know? It doesn't surprise me that it does, but he stands so totemic. Would you be okay with that? That the Frank Underwood character, if that's your crowning achievement, you've achieved something. Absolutely not. No. <laughs> I mean, it, there's, there's, I'm never okay with anything. There's no notion of satisfaction as far as I'm concerned. The goal isn't necessarily... I've asked the question wrong, man. Yeah. The... I, just, I, I just want to get at the idea that for... As complex as this show is and as much as it, you know, posits that maybe we could actually have a bridge connecting Port Jefferson to Connecticut. I grew up in Long (laughs) Island. I want that bridge. Like this Underwood character is transcendent. And I think that's something about people, but something about the strength of uh, the character and what you've done. Well, I I appreciate you saying that. I'm very proud of that character. That character is the creation of a lot of people. First of all, started off with uh, Lord Michael Dobbs, who was uh, an advisor to Thatcher, in fact, um, who wrote the novels. And Andrew Davis wrote uh, the BBC version that was exquisitely played by Ian Richardson. Uh, That was Francis Urquhart. Uh, in both cases. And then Frank Underwood uh, is our version in the present in America. I told Kevin when we started, I said, here's my ridiculous goal. My goal is to work with you to create a character that will eclipse all other characters that you have ever played. And when you think of what those characters are that he's played, that's a pretty tall order. Yeah, uh, including I, Broadway, including <laughs> Hickey, including... And I yeah. don't, you know, I, it's debatable whether yeah. we've succeeded in that yet. I don't think any of us ever could have expected this character would have the impact worldwide that he has. And I hope he's one that will stand the test of time, although you can never bank on that. As for me, though, uh, personally, why stop at that? You yeah. Know? I mean, and, and, and if, you know, the goal isn't necessarily to create iconic characters from my selfish perspective. The goal is to tell stories that I haven't told before, challenge myself on a daily basis to fail, and to maybe investigate the human soul in ways that I can learn a thing or two. Bo Williman, he <laughs> runs the House of Cards. He is the he shuffles the House of Cards. He's the driving force behind House of Cards on Netflix. Thank you, Bo. Thanks a lot, Mike. With digital cameras, smartphones, and social media, the visual is more important than it's ever been before. And it's up to you to take good pictures. How do you do it? I think the technology is there and they just trust you to be an expert. That's crazy. It's not like that with writing. It's not like that with other skills. Why do they think we know how to take great pictures? So where do we go to learn? I mean, practice is great doesn't necessarily make perfect. It would be great to be able to take a course, and now there is a course. The Fundamentals of Photography from the Great Courses. You can learn, as I have been watching this, you can learn many things about cameras and, you know, your smartphone and settings and some of the settings that I've seen all my life and don't know what they mean. But the best thing is how to frame a photo. National Geographic fellow Joel Sartore takes you through all of this. And you can become a better photographer by listening to this course. It's one of the great courses. There's over 500 of them. History, science, art. They're available on CD, DVD, streaming, digital downloads. There's an app. For a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for just listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Fundamentals of Photography, at up to 80% off the original price. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist. And now the spiel, bring back Pat. 
So if you ever listen to uh, the Culture Gab Fest, our Panoply Network sister podcast, they end their show with endorsements, just something in the culture they like. Could be pie, could be cake, could be a jazz album. Well, here's something I like. This is actually my favorite show. Nay, it is my favorite eight minutes of every day, except maybe time spent with loved ones, though, to be honest, including a lot of the time spent with loved ones. It's when I'm taken in the papers. New York One, which is the local station owned by Time Warner, has this feature every morning. They tell you what's in the newspapers. It is called, get this, in the papers. Here's anchorman Pat Kiernan giving you a taste of what was in the papers that day. This was a couple weeks ago. Here's a look at some of what's in the papers on this Tuesday morning. I want to start with the New York Times international attention on Israel today. With the parliament. Now, to be fair, if you watch all other cable news, if you listen to talk shows, they're always telling you what's in the papers. And it's not just that what's in the papers is news and they cover news. No, they read the papers. They really read the New York Times. Let's be honest. The New York Times sets the table for half of what you watch and listen to, unless you watch Fox, in which case it is still setting the table, but in a Titus Andronicus sort of way. Spoiler alert for a 425-year-old play. He stuffs the pies with his enemies and then his enemies with the pies. Okay, back to the present. In the papers is the absolute highlight of my morning. If I've already read the story, when Pat reads it to me, I give myself a mental high five. Like, been there. If it's in a paper to which I subscribe and I haven't read the story, I will rush to get to the actual story. That, by the way, is how Twitter works, except without anything you could touch, right? This is basically a really good Twitter feed that happens at a select time every day, about 42 after the hour. I have been known to build my gym selections, which gyms I go to and give money to based on which gym carries New York One. I started going to one gym. They were like, oh, yeah, we don't get New York one anymore. I switched gyms because I need to watch in the papers. About seven years ago, I changed from Time Warner to Verizon because Verizon sucked a little less. That is their official motto. We suck a little less than Time Warner. But I delayed that switch for months and months because New York One was only available on Time Warner. By the way, I'm off Verizon now. and didn't hurt as much. Just leaving cable altogether hurt less than leaving Time Warner. That is the pull of In the Papers. But as with any diehard, even a slight tweak seems like a sea change. Like when Cadbury eggs changed their chocolate recipe a little bit and all the egg enthusiasts went nuts, which was a story I believe I learned about in the papers. Well, in the papers did change all this week. In fact, this change always happens. It happens every weekend. And it's when someone other than Pat takes us in the papers. Now, you might think the institution is what sells it. No, it's really Pat. I like Pat's eye for what is interesting, his spin on the news, his gentle editorializing or adding of context. You know, floods are a strange news story to cover because it all happens so slowly and it's not a problem until all of a sudden it is a problem. I especially like when he chides the tabloids for overstepping the bounds of good taste or proper journalism. Like here, okay, the screen is showing page three of the Daily News, and what we see on page three of the Daily News is this headline about sleep, but the photo is of some model in a bikini lying on her side. Uh, no direct link to model Aaron Hetherington other than the fact that they used her picture to illustrate the story. Sly delivered with a wink proper, but knowing Pat is Canadian after all, and he wears a suit every day. But there is one more objection that I have, and this is what's been going on this week. So we just heard Pat's papers, but this week Pat was off, and we had a slew of replacements, as we do whenever he takes a break, and none were incompetent. 
it was a not incompetent attempt at going in the papers. Here, listen to the non-incompetence. The Wall Street Journal has an endearingly funny article, or Odyssey excerpt, you can call it, on page D6 by Jason Gay on taking his two-year-old, that's right, a toddler, to a Nets game at Barclays Center. He explains backup pants for his kid, or at least trying to pack some, why he sprung for a Star Wars Boba Fett candy fan, and the joy of simply making a memory. Yeah, sounds like a freaking hoot, huh? It is timing, but it's also actual time. I timed it. Pat speaks at 168 words a minute. That in the paper interloper, Vivian Lee speaks at 147 words a minute. So it's not much slower, but it's noticeable. And somehow Viv Lee delivers less joie de vivre. And like a Texas Hold'em player holding ace two, or like last year's version of the Detroit Lions, she needs a better kicker. I'm very upset to learn that the starch in potatoes goes from healthy to not so healthy when it's cooked and mashed. Guess I'm not having hash browns this morning for breakfast. Oh my God, oh my God, bring back Pat. I hope he was just taking the week off, but next week I'll be in Chicago, so I'm taking the week off. We were like two trains, maybe the J, the four and the five where service has been interrupted for a gas leak. We're two trains passing in the night. I beg you, Pat, return, line my cage with the news of the day, wrap my fish-like entrails in the domestic, international, and funny pages. Otherwise, we might as well just stop the presses. Got a favorite quirky feature of your local news, past or present? Tell it to me at facebook.com slash slate gist. I have also linked to my favorite moment in the papers since the gist has been on the air. The gist is produced by Andrea Salenzi. Her favorite segment of the local news is the supplementary number. Not all the lotto, just the supplementary number. And if she guesses it right, she rewards herself with four extra Fritos. Managing producer Joel Meyer subscribes to a service that summarizes yesterday's religious edicts from top imams. Fatwas that was. Executive producer Andy Bowers has an RSS feed that collects all stories of people who've been beheaded yesterday. It's the decap recap. Watch the premiere of Mad Men with Slate's TV Club. It's not a virtual invitation. They want you to go in person to the Bell House in Brooklyn, Sunday, April 5th, 9 p.m. It's free to join Julia Turner, John Swansburg, and special guests from the Mad Men TV Club to ring in the final days of Sterling, Cooper, and partners. Doors open at 9 for general admission. Slate Plus members get early access at 8. It is free, but you do have to RSVP. I will be on a plane to Chicago. I'm hosting Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Otherwise, I would go or at least say I'm going, which is why they asked you to RSVP at slate.com slash madmen. Lifehack. You know that phone number that you call where you calibrate your clock? Master clock. At the tone, Eastern Daylight Time, 17 hours, 43 minutes, 45 seconds. Well, there's another number to call where that guy from the number we just played, where he gets his time. It's the same time just five seconds earlier, and it's up to you to do the math. Also, there's a cheaper version of that number to call. For half the price, you get yesterday's exact time from exactly 24 hours earlier. I can't figure out the catch either. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Julia Turner from Slate's Culture Gab Fest. And this is Dana Stevens, another co-host of the Culture Gab Fest. And uh, we are here to entice you to listen to this week's show, on which Steve and Dana reveal that they hate Eloise. 
Dana, how could you hate Eloise? Uh, well, put it this way. We're reacting to a documentary, a new HBO documentary about Eloise, and it's true. Stephen Metcalf and I do question the reverence for that character in children's literature. Is she an empowered feminist or a spoiled brat? Find out on this week's Slate Culture Gab Fest. Also, Slate Plus members, you will get to hear Dana Stevens do a Bob Dylan impression. So uh, this week's episode is well worth your while. Pony up for that one.